Other thing I got to tell you about is that next Saturday at 8 a.m. is the men's breakfast. And if you are a dude and you don't have anything on your calendar, if you're like, do I? I don't know if I have something on my calendar. That means you don't. So you're going to get up and you're going to come to the men's breakfast. They're doing breakfast burritos, but you get to make your own. So you can have a bacon burrito. This is what I am looking forward to. I figure that I will have a heart attack about half an hour after the men's breakfast is over, but I will go happy. Because I'll show up, gates of heaven, and Jesus will be like, breakfast burrito, way to go. <laughs> anyway, so ladies, uh, if, if you're married and you got a dude, just be like, have you set your alarm early enough to kick him out of bed and make him go? If you're a single dude, you should know how to use an alarm anyway. This is just our desire to help you to learn how. So next Saturday morning, 8 a.m., meet out here upstairs in the youth room. That side door, go right upstairs. We're going to eat. My gospel community leader, Donald, is going to give the message uh, next week. He's already run it by me. It's excellent. Like, it would be anything but, you know, because he ran it by me. We need a drummer to be like, right? Uh, also, don't forget that Go Bags, uh, like Sarah was saying, are right outside this door. Uh, Go Bags are a way that we get to help and step into certain things in our community. Uh, when kids are taken out of homes by, by CWS... Uh, and no matter how you feel about them, we shouldn't penalize kids because of that. So sometimes kids get taken out of homes, and many times when that happens is they, they used to go with trash bags, and they just throw some stuff in a trash bag and take the kid. Uh, we think we want to make, anytime that happens, less traumatic for children. And so what Go Bags do is they're a way to make sure when kids do get taken out of homes, they have a toothpaste and toothbrush and some pajamas and, and certain things to make their life have a little bit more, more normalcy to it. And so that's why we do that. And so, again, it's not about how you feel about the government or CPS or things like that. It's, it's about helping these kids. And so we want to do our best we can to step in and, and alleviate some of that pain. So we encourage you to grab a Go Bag on the way out. You'll have any day during this month to bring it back. If you bring it back next week, it's probably better because then you won't forget because you wait two or three weeks. You can be like, oh, I can do that next week. Don't procrastinate. It's for the children. I'll guilt you into it. Just guilt you into it. Uh, if you are new to Element, welcome to you. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you get some notes to go a little bit deeper, as well as some questions to go deeper into what we're talking about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Uh, click on More and then Events in Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes along with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Psalm chapter 25, verse 11. And it says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that we would understand the goodness and the, and the greatness of the gospel, of what you have done, of how you have pardoned our guilt, and how in doing that you in turn make your name great. I ask that you would teach us to live and walk in the goodness of who you are as we live that out among the people who are around us. Amen. Have a seat. So we were in this series called What in the World Part 2. comes out of What in the World 
part one, because numbers work that way. And at the end of last year, I did some questions out of the Bible that sometimes still make me scratch my head and go, huh, what in the world? During that series, we asked you to write down your what in the world questions. We promised that we would come back and answer your questions. So that's kind of what we're doing. This is an effort to help you to understand the scriptures better. Today, we're going to get to a question that I felt like I've answered before, but apparently not good enough for anybody to remember. (laughs) Yeah, that, that's a problem with me, not with you. Not. Okay. Uh, I'm going to preface this before we get to the question and just tell you uh, that we don't actually have anything that Jesus wrote down himself. In the gospel accounts, you see Jesus write something down, but it's only this once that we're going to look at today. And he writes in sand, which is a temporary medium, if you didn't know that. And I think he did this so we wouldn't have anything else to try to make an object of worship. Can you seriously imagine if we had something that Jesus wrote down with his own hand? Like today we have this thing called the Shroud of Turin. Here's a picture of the Shroud of Turin. This is supposed to be the burial garment that Jesus was buried in. And people venerate this thing and they worship this thing and they fight over it and they spend lots of money to see it. Uh, There have been movies and TV shows and books that have been written about the spear that pierced Jesus' side and has magical properties and can do all of these things. I just got done watching this show of how they call it the the spear of destiny or something like that. And it can change reality. (gasps) Really? Just by... It's crazy. Uh, People have said sometimes have pieces of the cross that Jesus died on. And they venerate these pieces of the cross. Honestly, there was somebody probably already hanging on that cross the very next day. The very next day. But if Jesus wrote something down on a piece of paper with his own hand, wars would be fought over it, politicians would quote it, handwriting experts would be trying to figure it out as they look at it, because we are dumb, and we always want to worship something other than, other than Jesus. Jesus is the one who died. Jesus is the one who rose from the grave. The piece of the wood that he died on, or the garment he was buried in, means nothing. He rose, he lives, he is our Lord. <sighs> Got to start there on my soapbox just to get going, okay? I mean, seriously, what if Jesus had some post-its, right? And he's like, huh, Peter, don't forget the milk. Bam, slap it on his forehead. And then one day we got a hold of that? We'd be like, oh, as Jesus said in his own words, don't forget the milk. Right, because we're weird. We're just so weird about this stuff. So open your Bibles to John chapter 8. And the question in this isn't, why don't we have anything Jesus wrote? The question really is this. In John chapter 8, which discusses Jesus writing in the sand, I thought to myself, what in the world did he do that for? So first, whoever wrote that question, thank you for not asking me what he wrote, because we have no idea. But you asked me why, and I got a little bit of speculation on this, but again, it's just speculation. I do not claim to know the mind of God. Anybody who says they know the mind of God, run the other way, okay? Jesus didn't say why. I've got some speculation. And as we kind of walk through today, we're going to get to some very serious stuff. I, I thought I had a couple kind of cool jokes in this today, and nobody laughed because it's, it's kind of heavy as we get to what we're going to get through today. So I'm going to walk through this. We'll talk about it in context. It actually starts in John 7.53, and most of you will have a footnote in your Bible in the bottom that says this. This is not in the earliest manuscripts. 
The story we look at today is about a woman who was caught in adultery. And this story is going to be depicted in almost any Jesus movie you ever see. Even the movie The Passion, which is about like the last few hours of Jesus' life, they still have a flashback and put this in it. This is like one of the most loved stories in the Bible, but it's not in the earliest manuscripts. There's a debate among Johannian scholars whether this section belongs in the Bible at all. And I personally think this is a great debate that we should have. Because the scriptures you hold in your hand are the most faithful that they can be. They are not a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation. They are meticulously researched and documented. So what you have is like from the original language to you. You can trust the Bible you hold in your hand. Originally the scriptures, they were written on very perishable materials. It's why the Jews and the church itself had people and their sole job was to copy those scriptures and write them down so more people could have them. And they would write them down word for word. And if they messed up a word, they wouldn't be like your mom when you get a smudge or dirt on your... And your mom goes and wipe it off. They wouldn't white it out. They would throw away the entire piece and start over from scratch from the beginning because they wanted to make sure that what you hold in your hands is as true as possible. Today, we have over 25,000 different pieces of manuscript of the New Testament scriptures of the New Testament Scriptures. This is more than any other thing out there. Nothing is even a close second. If you've ever read in school Plato or Aristotle, we have 25 times more evidence of the Scriptures than we have for those things. You ever read Shakespeare? We have more evidence for the New Testament Scriptures than we do for Shakespeare. To be or not to be. Right there. That's how nothing is even a close second. So the section we look at today, it doesn't show up in some of these earliest manuscripts that we have. It appears around the 3rd to the 5th century. So people wonder, should it be there? Why don't those early manuscripts show it? And there's two explanations. Uh, The first one is a guy named Jerome, early church father, lived during that 3rd to 5th century, and he was one of the first Bible translators. He took the Hebrew and the Greek, and he translates them into what is known as the Latin Vulgate. At the time, Latin's taking over the world, so... They want a translation that people can read, so they do it in Latin. Originally, the King James Version of the Bible was translated out of this Latin Vulgate. And when he does his translation, he includes this section in his translation because he believed it was a truthful portrayal of events that did occur. There is no debated doctrine in it. There's no contention. It's completely in line with Christ's character. The second person that I'll talk to you about is a guy named Augustine. And Augustine infers that in the early church, there was a lot of adultery because Romans didn't know how to handle the Internet. And this adultery would then get found out, and church leaders would go and confront them, and they would take this section of the scriptures, and these people who were caught would say, see, Jesus didn't condemn it, you shouldn't condemn it, it's all okay. So some of these early church leaders, Augustine says, didn't know how to combat that, so they just took it out. And then they realized, we probably shouldn't jack with scripture, so they didn't put it back in. All this to say is that I think it actually should be in the scriptures, I think it's in line with Jesus' character, and I think it's very important for some of the things that we study, and especially how we understand grace. So John 7.53 is where it starts. Here we go. Uh, They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. This woman has been caught in adultery. Now, as we start, I want you to understand a couple things. Number one, people in our world get lost and hurt a lot. Certain things happen in their lives. People make mistakes that destroy their lives forever. 
And I'm not just talking about adultery. I'm talking about a bunch that maybe you're at work and you got chewed out or you're in a relationship and you got dumped by somebody and you made some horrible mistakes on the backside of it because you're having a really bad day. In the end, we should be a people who respond as God calls us to, but sometimes we make stupid mistakes. In Romans 15, 7, Paul says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Now, accepting someone in the context that Paul talks about it is different than how we understand accepting somebody. When we hear accept somebody today, we think condone whatever they do and say it's okay. That's not acceptance. In the scriptures, acceptance meant that you want the best for someone's soul, no matter what they did or what they will do. That you want the best for them. You accept them as a person, even in the midst of their sin. You don't condone it. You don't say it's okay. Sometimes you even get in their face. You've got to do some very hard things. But accepting means, in the end, you want the, what's best for them, and you try and find the, ways, the, the best ways to bring about that goodness in their life. So John chapter 8 is a story of a group of men. They are supposed to try to point people to God and His salvation and what He intends to do. But somewhere along the way, like all of us, at some point, they forgot that. In this story, Jesus will remind them of what that's supposed to be. In this story, there's a woman who at one time in her life was probably a very excited bride. She probably had a husband who loved her. She probably dreamed of raising a family. But things didn't turn out the way that she planned. could be her fault. could be her husband's fault. Most likely, if you've ever been married, it's both. It's both. She meets another man that notices her and knew what to say to her. And that's a powerful thing for somebody with a broken heart. So the woman, she finds a man who seems to care. It's probably very innocent at first until certain lines start to get crossed. Maybe it's a touch that lasts too long. Maybe it's a sharing of a secret. Maybe it's the betraying of her husband's confidence by not speaking of him with honor. You know, maybe she didn't notice what was going on, but in the end, she actually chose. And then she starts to cross other lines until it's a full-blown affair. And as long as these are two separate worlds, she can live two different lives. She can pretend one didn't exist and lie about the other. She didn't have to think about what this is doing to her kids. She didn't have to think about how it's actually damaging her soul, but it was. And this is what I told you two weeks ago. Sin unchecked always leads to more sin. Always. And in the end, sin in our lives is going to make us start to justify these stupid things that we're doing. Oh, it's really not that bad. Oh, it's really okay. And we start justifying these things. She probably used to be very honest with her husband or her church or her family. The first time she lies about it, she's probably sure everybody can see it, but nobody really does. So then she doesn't notice and continues on and keeps lying and her heart becomes very hard. She's become a liar. The first time she probably went to temple after she slept with this guy, she's probably like, God's going to strike me with lightning. But God didn't. But God didn't. And now she doesn't really think about God either. And when God speaks, she can't hear God speak. She's kind of become a hypocrite. She doesn't notice what's really happening to herself and her heart. And then you have this night or this day, and it finally arrives, and she's with this guy again, and the door swings open, and there's all these men outside. They're waiting, and they're watching. She probably screams and cries and begs for mercy. Probably wishes she can go back to the very first time she crossed that first line and say, I wish I never crossed that line. It's, it's a lot like Adam and Eve in the fall, right? Adam and Eve in the fall, their eyes become open, they realize they're naked, they're ashamed, and they want to hide. This is exactly probably what this woman is going through. Her eyes are open, she sees what has happened, she is ashamed, she wants to hide, she wants to run away. But in the end, we have to understand, she's not a victim. She made choices that led to this day. She would probably run off and commit suicide if they'd let her, but they don't. They bundle her up and take her away. She's taken to Jesus by a band of men while he's teaching. And they don't take her to Jesus so he can explain the gospel and to heal her. 
They take her there so she can be killed because this is public humiliation. And in the end, they're really just after Jesus. And she's just an afterthought. It says, the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. The, the law is very clear about caught in the act. This is like hand in the cookie jar. Okay? It's hand in the cookie jar. One witness is not enough to convict. So Moses says you've got to have two to three witnesses. They must be brought forward. This means these guys had to wait and watch to see what was going to happen. It is cold-blooded premeditation. It tells of their contempt for the woman and their contempt for Jesus. Why? Because the man's not brought here. The other dude is let go. He probably sets up a deal where they could take the woman, because in that culture, women were worthless, and take her to Jesus and go get him. The law is clear. So they're going to be like, Jesus, what do you say about this? Because they think they have him. Because no matter what he says, I mean, he's, he's done. If he says, no, don't stone her, then he's not a good rabbi because he's not following the law. If he says, yeah, stone her, then his message of grace and mercy is out the window, and they can be, go to the Roman government and say, arrest him. He just told us to kill somebody. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? John 8, 5. So the Pharisees say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? I love how they they remind the writer of scripture what it actually says. It's kind of funny. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus went down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I always wonder, is Jesus totally frustrated here? I mean, seriously, you got all of these guys who start the pursuit to be a Pharisee or a teacher of the law, and none of them started out being like, one day I'm going to be really judgmental. Oh, it's going to be great. No, they start out wanting to love God, to know him better. And in the end, this is where they end up. Their learning fills them with pride. Their lifestyle makes them have contempt for those who don't live that same lifestyle. Think about this. It's how you view somebody of a different political persuasion than you. You think they don't understand, that they're less than you. We all do this. See, judgmental people walk through their lives and don't even realize how judgmental they are. We walk around with stones in our hands ready to mock other people and talk about them and say horrible things about them because we have these impatient words and judgmental thoughts and bitter resentment. But if you contrast that to who Jesus is, Jesus is humble. He is humble. And I mean in the true sense of the word humble, even here. True humbleness, what it does is in your personality, it's going to pair gentleness and bravery. If you are gentle and not brave, you will think that acceptance is whatever anybody wants to do and you've got to accept it all. If you are brave and not gentle, you're going to be a self-righteous jerk. One of the main things you see about Jesus here, as opposed to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, is the way he does not treat this woman as if she is beneath him. He does not do that. And Jesus is God in the flesh. True humbleness never looks down on people. It doesn't speak in a condescending voice. It doesn't mock, especially when you deal with somebody who you know is below you in talent or life maturity, as this woman is clearly below Jesus in her moral attainments. Even though she is below him, he didn't treat her as being below him. He does not do that. Even though she was wrong, Jesus is still incredibly gentle. And you see this throughout Jesus' life. The the night before Jesus betrayed, he goes and he's having this meal with his disciples and he washes Judas's feet. The guy who's going to betray him, he washes his feet. 
because he wants to wake Judas up. Jesus is very gentle. He takes these disciples with him to, to the mountain as he goes to pray before he's arrested. And he says, pray with me. And they keep falling asleep. And Jesus walks up and he says, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. That is gentle. That's gentle. You got Peter. Peter is a guy who's telling Jesus right the night before Jesus raised. He's like, I will never deny you. I will go to the grave. And by the next morning, he's denied him three times. But in the midst of this tirade by Peter, Jesus is like, Simon, Simon. It's very gentle. But there's bravery too, which brings me to this, what's he writing in the dirt thing? There's so much debate as to what this is. In Roman law said a judge wrote down a sentence and then he would read it. So some people say Jesus was writing it down, showing he's the only one that had the right to judge. Some think he was writing the Ten Commandments. Some people think he's doodling. I think he's doodling because I would doodle. I'd be like, oh. That's what I would do. One idea goes to the 5th century that says that Jesus was writing the names and the sins of the leaders of this group. Staring at the window longer than you had to. Oh, setting somebody up. But the what in the world question is actually why. Because this is a crisis. This is a big issue. In people's eyes, Jesus' messiahship is at, is at stake. This woman's life is at stake. And he's doodling in the dirt. Why is he doing that? He stands up and he says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he goes back to doodling in the dirt. Why? Why? And I think this is why what he writes is not as important as why he's actually doing it. I think what John is trying to get across to you and to me when we read this story is that Jesus is poised. He is calm. He is fearless. Today we would call this unflappable. He is unflappable. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The word there that Jesus uses for himself as gentle, what that word means in the Greek, it's a, an animal or a powerful wild animal that's now submissive to its rider. It's like a tamed wild animal. What it tells you is that when Jesus comes to earth, he doesn't give up his power or his greatness. Matthew 26, 53, he says, I can command angels right now to come down and do this thing. On earth, Jesus still has power and glory. He just doesn't exercise it. Why? He is submitting everything to the will of the Father. That's why. He could wipe all of these guys out. I'm done with you. I am tired of these arguments. Just done. But he doesn't do that. He continues to try to open their eyes, to teach them, to grow them, to show them grace, to remind them of what they were meant to be, of why they wanted to read the scriptures in the first place. And that's where bravery comes in. In our minds, gentleness and weakness go together. But in the scriptures and Jesus' theology, they are utter opposites. Gentleness and weakness are opposites. This is one of the things that, if you really think about it, it's scary about Jesus. He says, I am Lord of heaven and earth. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Before Abraham was born, I am. He makes all these incredible statements. I am the judge of all the earth. I can forgive all sin. Jesus never once says, oh, I'm nothing. He never does that. Never. And what he does is he becomes a servant. He acts like he's nothing, but he knows he's not. And this is the exact opposite of how you and I go through our lives and our understanding of humility. Most of us, we go through our lives and we feel inferior. So we build these walls. We try and make our, and we bluster and try and say all these things so people think that we are superior, that we know what we're talking about, we know what we're doing. We're always trying to compensate for it. But Jesus knows he's superior. And in a sense, he's the one that actually acts inferior. He puts all of his power and his glory under the interest of seeking and serving and saving the lost. George MacDonald once said, Real humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. 
C.S. Lewis quoted that, and then C.S. Lewis says that not being humble, he says, is unsmiling concentration on the self. He says he calls that a mark of hell. True humility means that you are free of having to think about yourself, to always focus on yourself. If you are someone who always says, oh, I need compliments, or I'm always getting my feelings hurt, that's because you're self-focused. You are always looking at yourself. You have an unsmiling concentration upon yourself. Jesus shows himself to be unflappable because he knows who he is. And he writes on the ground as he allows people to begin to process through the things that he is saying. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. You go to verse 9, it says, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. He is unflappable. I think that kind of is the answer to the question, but I think it's so much deeper than this. So let me spend a little more time going a little bit deeper in this. The first thing you see in this is that Jesus honors the law. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Basically, at this time, if you were going to be a witness against somebody for this, and they were going to be stoned, you also had to be the executioner. It's why they had stones in their hand. But the law also teaches that if you're going to go and be this witness and this executioner, you cannot be guilty of the same crime. So there's evidence here that supports the idea that when Jesus says, let him who is without sin, let him cast the first stone, it does not mean, and they would not take it to have mean, that you can only judge somebody if you're sinless. You can only punish somebody if you're sinless. Like, if you have to be sinless before you punish somebody, does that mean you grab Richard Ramirez, the night stalker, mass murder, and be like, I would throw you in jail, but I'm not sinless myself, so I guess you get to go. No, no, that's, that's not what it means. Jesus, in a very penetrating way, probably looks at some of these guys, and part of what he's saying is, some of you are adulterers too. And just points at it. And then he starts to write on the ground. And they're like, oh, what's he writing on the ground? (laughs) They freak out, just like us. What's he writing on the ground? And when he does this, the older ones start to go away first. Like, I don't need to see this. I got to go, right? And they just start walking away. But Jesus is also doing something else. And this is so, so brilliant. The the laws of evidence demand that you actually have to see the actual adultery or you are a false witness. But if you you see the actual act of adultery, who's supposed to be brought for judgment? Both. The man and the woman. Adultery is a sin for both. The Mosaic law was a thing of beauty. There was nothing like it in the world. It was about equality. But where's the man? So either these guys, they saw the action and only brought the woman, and the Bible calls that partiality and favoritism. In the Old Testament, a judge who was partial or played favorites or had double standards, was he himself to be taken out and executed? It's like, yeah, you better be a fair judge or that's going to happen to you. So either they're guilty of partiality or they're guilty of being a false witness and lying. Why? Because the man wasn't there. That's why. There's no way they could be without sin themselves if the man wasn't also brought. Jesus says, this law you're trying to cite, I honor it perfectly. Jesus didn't deny the law. He denied their right to be her witnesses and executioners. And they leave, and they're gone. He honors and respects the law. It's very astounding, but then, you know, God is smart. (laughs) Much smarter than us, by the way. And then he turns to her and he says something which is at the heart of the gospel. And the order here is very important. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Right? So he's saying, this is a sin. You know you're guilty. Right? 
I know you're guilty. They knew you were guilty. We all know that you're guilty. But he says, I don't condemn you. Now, this is where the what in the world question would actually come in for me. Because to be consistent, you would have to say, you're guilty and I condemn you. Or you're not guilty and I don't condemn you. But Jesus says you're guilty and I don't condemn you. Like, what in the world? I love how Tim Keller talks about this passage because he refers back to this old Jesus movie called The Greatest Story Ever Told. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but again, it's a Jesus movie, so this scene is going to be in it about all this. And during this scene, when they bring these rocks to try and execute her, Jesus walks around to the crowd with a stone in his hand, seeing if anybody's going to take it and throw it. And when nobody does, Jesus throws it down because he's the only one who has the right to actually throw the rock because he's the only one without sin. Jesus doesn't cast it at the woman. He doesn't cast it at the guys who brought her, although I think, why not, right? (laughs) Dummy, (laughs) that kind of thing. Where does he cast it? He doesn't cast it away because sin doesn't go into thin air. Forgiveness does not mean, oh, forget about it. But somebody always pays for a debt. So where does Jesus cast the rock? At his own feet. That's where he throws it. The gospel is the truth that Jesus says, I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. That's the gospel. You don't even have a little pebble of God's wrath thrown at you because I am going to take it all upon myself. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what a Christian is. Every other religion in this world says either you're not guilty and you're not condemned or you're guilty and you are condemned. What's a Christian? A Christian is like this woman. You are guilty, but you're not condemned. But you're not condemned. You're a sinner, and you are utterly welcomed into God's family because of what he has done. This is what is supposed to produce life change in who we are, that we understand what he has done. Too often, life change becomes so hard for us because we don't understand the gospel. When we are humbled and undone by what he has done, our lives will begin to change because of what he has done. No other religion, no other philosophy in this world could possibly produce the life change that Christianity does because it's based in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you a little bit of application here because what does this kind of mean for us? If, if you're a believer, what does this mean? I think you've got to ask ourselves some questions. First off, are we humble like Jesus? Are we gentle and brave both? Are we both of those things? Do we love others but care enough to tell them when they are stepping into horrible situations and when they're wrong? Or are we also willing to walk through pain with them at given times? How do you view those around you who have a different moral standard than you, or maybe even who hate the church? Do they they like you? Because those same people like Jesus. They like Jesus. Do you think the woman here really understands what Jesus was going to have to do in order for her, him to say, I don't condemn you, go and you know, leave your life of sin? Do you think she understood that? No. She understand all the ramifications of that, but she's just like us. Just like us. We don't understand. You can be a Christian for years and still not understand the depth and the goodness of the gospel because you don't see everything in your life through what Jesus has done. And yet Jesus still pursues us and loves us because it's who he is. It is who he is. The gospel is the good news that Jesus is coming to rescue and save and change us because of who he is. If you have somebody in your life that you are ready to give up on and you don't understand this idea that Jesus never gave up on you, 
You're never going to understand how not to give up on somebody else. And I'm not saying that you don't sometimes have to put somebody out of your life because of things that they are doing. But even in the midst of that, you are still praying for the good things to come into their life. You still want that repentance to take place so you can step in and begin to walk and heal with them again. When you look at how Jesus loved you, when you didn't get it, you'll be able to love other people too. Jesus doesn't say, go and sin no more and then I won't condemn you. What you see is that he first gives grace and acceptance before you overcome your sin. That's how it starts. You don't overcome your sin in order to get grace and acceptance. Personally, when I try and you know, power through something in my life that's really bad for me, and I'm always like, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to be afraid of God, and so I'm going to do it right. Or I'm gonna... It never works until I come to the place where I am humbled because I understand what Jesus has first done to rescue and save me. And that brings life change. Whatever in our lives that we think is more important than Jesus, we have to ask, is that thing going to die for us? that thing going to save us? Is it going to help us? The only way we will ever have a changed life is the first to understand the gospel, the no condemnation. And then our lives become fully surrendered to Jesus and we give everything to him and we receive that incredible grace that he has given to us. That's how life change actually happens, as we understand what he has first done. It begins to humble us and change us because our God is that good. And we are undone by that goodness. And we cease running around trying to figure our own lives out because we realized he is the one who has figured it out. The gospel is the good news that he's rescuing us and saving us. This is why we talk about communion every week. You, it's like that cracker. You break it. Why? Because we were broken. And so Jesus came. He himself was broken to rescue and save us. His body was broken. You dip in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because as a lost and broken people, our God came and himself was broken to restore us to what we were meant to be. The gospel is the good news that when we actually believe it and begin to live in it and not just use it for this thing we think, oh, I know the gospel, it gets me into heaven after I die. No, the gospel is every day of your life. Live surrendered to the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion. Be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, they would love to pray with you. Maybe you're in a place today where you feel like there's condemnation heaped upon you and you want to understand what it means to really live in the grace and the goodness of what Jesus has done. They'd love to pray with you about that. They would love to move you to a place maybe you begin to understand who he is and what he has done and understanding the gospel better. As we do these things at Element called Redemption Groups, this is what Redemption Groups center around, beginning to see our entire world through the redemption that has first been given to us. As our God is so good, and so often we run around and we don't believe it. We don't accept it. We don't live in it. But we must become a people who understand the grace and the goodness of the gospel and begin to live that out in all that we do. Because if we don't, we'll either be gentle and not brave or brave and not gentle. And we are intended to be both. And if you would like prayer, there'll be people in the back to pray for you. There's offering boxes in the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship, so you have the opportunity every week. Uh, there's food in the back. Grab something to eat, meet some other people. And hopefully when you meet some other people, 
Begin to live in community with other people and ask people some hard questions and they ask you some hard questions about what this looks like. Do you see the value in other people like God finds value in you? I, sometimes it, it's really bad because you get around a bunch of people who are just like you and you all just become a bunch of Pharisees. And you're like, you mock and make fun of other people. It's like, yeah, because they're stupid. There needs to be somebody in your life who can take you six step back and be like, yeah, that's probably not the best way to talk about people, <laughs> right? We need to have people who can speak the truth to us. And that's one of the reasons why we always try and connect you guys to other people so we can have those in our lives to walk us through because God intends for us to walk with others in our lives so we understand the gospel better and better and better. Guys, our God is good. Our God is good. We are the ones who fail to realize it. But the more that we understand it, the more our lives will change. And the more he will get glory, the more we will live in joy. And I think the more our lives will change because he becomes first. And we change because he has first loved us and first blessed us and first given to us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, first off, thanks for questions that people ask. Uh, We thank you for your grace and your goodness and the things that we get to look at in the scriptures that teach us so much of how the gospel is something that's to be lived every single day. We ask that you would remind us as we go throughout our life to see the things around us through your lens, to see the people around us as you call us to see them, and that we in turn would then see our own lives that way as well. That God, when you call us to change and become better people it's not that that betterness makes you love us more it's that you already have loved us and you want the best for our lives so you constantly discipline us and grow us we thank you for the gentleness and how you shepherd our souls but also the bravery when you come in and discipline us in hard ways teach us to accept that and live in that as the goodness that it is. And to in turn, go out and be gentle and brave ourselves. To live in true humbleness where we don't feel like we have to put up walls in front of people and make ourselves sound so great and wonderful we can simply rest in who we are in you. Because you know who you are. Have us be a people who stand amazed at your grace and your love given to us. Then teach us to go out and live that amazing grace among other people. So the entire world would know who you are because of how you have rescued and saved us. Teach us to be children that reflect who you are and how we live and how we love. That we would speak the true gospel with our lives and not a false gospel by the things that we do and say. That all of us would be surrendered to all that you are and everything becomes new again. We thank you for rescuing and saving us. Amen.